I'm Jessica Dorr, and you're listening to The Offering for February 2023. Content warning, misogyny, and the violence of men. Back in August, I wrote an offering called Self-Domination and Fear of Being Yourself. At the time, I was thinking about social anxiety and self-acceptance. I shared the story of Skeleton Woman, as told by Clarissa Pinkola Estes in her book, Women Who Run With the Wolves. In the story, a woman is killed by her father, thrown off a cliff and plunged into the sea, and then haunts the bay as a skeleton. I'd been interested in one small detail from Estes' telling of the story, which is that Skeleton Woman sits silently as a fisherman whose net she's been caught in gently and patiently untangles her. Skeleton Woman's silence felt learned, a mechanism in the interest of harm reduction forged in response to her father's violence. It remained unclear what she'd done that was so wrong those years ago. As Estes writes, she'd done something of which her father disapproved, although no one any longer remembered what it was. And still her body absorbed his perception of wrongdoing, took it up as if it were nourishment, and then wove it seamlessly into the tapestry of safety-seeking behaviors that we often call the personality. Last weekend, I gave a talk on The Magician. And by the way, if you're a paying subscriber or want to become one, the approximately 45-minute audio and text transcript are up now on the Substack feed. After the talk, there was a Q&A session, and someone asked a question about The Magician and power. I stumbled on it. It's increasingly tough for me to take any word lightly, and especially a big word like power. Power feels like it wants a meaning that is meticulous, painstakingly arrived to, and at the same time fluid. I also recognize that this fixation on semantics may be one of the ways that I do what Skeleton Woman did when she sat silently through a charged moment. By evading responding from the heart to a heartfelt question, I hope to minimize what harm might come from saying the wrong thing. Anyway, it's always after the opportune moment that I remember something that would have been perfect to share. Later that day, I recalled Joanna Macy's words on power from her chapter in the eco-psychology book, which I wrote about last summer. She doesn't explicitly define power, but does say that there's power in the capacity to suffer with our world. This is because suffering with others orients us to our mutual belonging, and there's power in that belonging. Macy's ideas on power have felt related to the capacity we have to go against something we've been conditioned to do. Conditioning seems like an expression of power and that it's an imposition of forces with interests that don't belong to us, that then, often imperceptibly, constitute our lives, choices, thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Some examples. For people who've been socialized for competition, Macy writes that power might involve leaning into empathy, since empathy isn't considered an asset in competitive environments. If, on the other hand, you've been socialized to take on more than your share of emotional labor, power could look like being assertive when it makes others uncomfortable, setting a boundary, or giving feedback when it feels scary to do so. Skeleton Woman was conditioned by her father's violence. His outrage taught her to be quiet, no matter what. I can't help but see Skeleton Woman sitting silently as an image of what Philip Cushman calls self-domination a kind of self-policing in which we internalize subjugating forces and surveil ourselves tirelessly in attempts to avoid the risk of further victimization or exile. In the initial Skeleton Woman offering, I cited psychotherapists Jill Friedman and Jean Combs, 
authors of Narrative Therapy, The Social Construction of Preferred Realities. I was happy to see their names when I went back to read it because I've just begun a year-long narrative therapy training with them, which I'm loving. As part of the month's assignments, I'm reading about Michel Foucault's analysis of knowledge and power in a book by Michael White and David Epstein called Narrative Means to Therapeutic Ends. Foucault's ideas about knowledge and power involved dominant knowledges, unitary and global truth claims, which subjugate dissenting truths and relegate them to an under-realm or to the edges. Just as Skeleton Woman is plunged deep down into the sea and later holds her tongue, knowing that the truths she has can't be told safely in the open, so it is with knowledges that go against so-called objective truths, which are generated, packaged, and disseminated to be taken as fact and without question. For Foucault, it was through the recovery of lost details that a rich history of struggle and protest against subjugating forces could be restored. As these details emerge, quote, an effective criticism of the dominant knowledges becomes possible, a criticism whose validity is not dependent on the approval of the established regimes of thought, end quote. The detail about Skeleton Woman sitting silently as the fisherman untangles her bones is such a small, easy-to-overlook detail, and it's the kind that I've learned to look for in part from years of working with symbols and images and in part from reading about narrative therapy. It seems that recovering Skeleton Woman's killed-off or swallowed secrets is one of the primary tasks in narrative work. Noting small details and making them big by feeding them with our attention, is one way to recover and restore the under-acknowledged truths in our lives. There's also a technique called externalizing in narrative work, which is about putting some space between yourself and a problem. Space makes it easier to locate what dominant knowledges might be operating unexamined, making objects of us in the way that unquestioned truths tend to do. Paradoxically, we can reclaim our subjectivity by making our problems into things that are distinct from ourselves. Epstein and White ask questions about the beliefs we have about ourselves or others that are confirmed by the continued presence of a particular problem. Perhaps I have an interpersonal betrayal problem, which confirms that my peers are untrustworthy, that relationships in general aren't safe, and that I don't deserve a thing like loyalty. Wherever we find that the problem confirms a personal defect or an expectation we've fallen short of, we can be sure a dominant knowledge is involved. Once we see the dominant knowledges, we can start to look back at how long these alleged truths have been impacting us and what the consequences have been. One question Epstein and White suggest asking is about what the problem requires to survive. If my problem is that I stay silent in social situations because I'm afraid to say the wrong thing, does an inner monologue of comparison, judgment, and criticism fuel this problem? What else gives it such a robust and thriving life? And where do these things come from? In identifying the ways the problem prompts and compels us to treat ourselves and others, we can see the techniques of power that we've been trying to make a life under the weight of. Skeleton Woman was first silenced by her father, and the way she enforced silence upon herself in an intimate moment replicated that. I have my own lineage of fathers whose weight I live under, but I also have an iPhone and social media, so I see thousands of advertisements a day on average, all of which need me to know that I'm not as good as I could be. 
And it's honestly no wonder when I'm at a party or a fisherman is untangling my bones from his net or a person is asking me a question about power in a Q&A session. I'm racked with self-doubt. There's a voice saying, well, you're all right, I guess, but not as good as you could be. Another thing we can do, suggest Epstein and White, is look for moments when we could have deployed the technique of power, but didn't. We can perform meaning, a phrase that I adore, around those moments, flesh them out like skeleton woman's cheeks and belly filling in as the fisherman slept. Even if there's only one time in her life she can recall speaking up when she could have stayed silent, to give value to that moment, paying attention to it, demonstrates a refusal to acquiesce to the silencing imperative and the capacity to undermine, quote, the ideas that it both reinforces and depends upon for its survival, end quote. In doing so, Skeleton Woman creates her own, quote, historical account of resistance. And though I'm still not clear on a definition of power, it feels powerful to imagine my own historical accounts of resistance, timelines to mark the moments of brave struggle against the many imposed truths that have constituted my life, despite the fact that I never questioned or would have chosen them for myself. You're listening to the offering for February 2023. Monthly offerings have been free since 2016 and will remain so, but in 2021, I began making offerings weekly for paying subscribers for as little as $5 a month or $50 a year. There's an archive now of weekly posts in both text and audio formats, which new subscribers get access to in addition to all the new weeklies in your inbox. As always, if you feel moved to hit the like button or share, please do. This recording was engineered by Lee Clark, and the music is by Lee Clark. The intro is called Evaporate, featuring Kingsley Ibaniche. You can listen to Evaporate in full and more of Lee's work wherever you stream music or at the links in this post. Thank you so much for being here, and we'll see you next time.